I wanted to go back and have a conversation with that school counselor to ask him, what was it about me other than that score that would have him sow that seed into my life that I would be unsuccessful at the college level? I never got the opportunity to do that, but I did go into college and graduate and interestingly became a school counselor and committed myself to never sowing that kind of seed into the life of a student because it brings burdens, you know. There were times along my path that when I was challenged to do something, I questioned whether I had the ability to do it because that professional who was in the position of guiding students in their chosen career paths said I didn't have the ability to do it. But I did in fact become a school counselor and I've gone on to become a building administrator and I'm in a doctoral program. But I would love to have had that conversation with him. This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University. And I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Simone Drake, who has selected two short oral narratives by Scotia Brown, an African-American woman who lives in Indianapolis, Indiana. Scotia's stories were told in autumn 2021 as part of a research project on African-American women's stories of everyday racism that Simone and I have been working on with several other scholars. Our other collaborators are our OSU colleague, Robert Warhol, Lisa Zunshine from the University of Kentucky, and Jack Terman and Kyle Miner from Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. The title of the project is Black Women's Lives Matter, Learning from Stories of Everyday Racism. At the center of the project are stories by eight African-American women from central Indiana. We narrative scholars ask the women to tell two stories about their experiences with racism. The first, in which they were effectively able to negotiate the situation, and the second, in which their efforts were not successful. Having collected the stories, we've been analyzing them to highlight what their thick descriptions reveal about the pervasiveness in race, of racism in the day-to-day -day lives of black women, and to look for some systemic ways to counter that racism. My guest today, Simone Drake, is the Hazel C. Youngberg Trustees Distinguished Professor of English at Ohio State and a core member of the Project Nar Narrative faculty. Simone is a faculty affiliate at the Moritz College of Law, the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity, the Department of African American and African Studies, and the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. Simone's interdisciplinary research agenda focuses on how people of African descent in the Americas negotiate the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, class, and nation through the lenses of critical race, gender, and legal studies. Simone is particularly interested in how the humanities do and should inform public policy and law. She's the author of When We Imagine Grace, Black Men and Subject Making, University of Chicago Press 2016, and Critical Appropriations, African-American Women and the Construction of Transnational Identity, LSU Press 2014. 
She's co-editor with Dewan Henderson of Are You Entertained? Black Popular Culture in the 21st Century, Duke University Press 2020, and numerous journal articles and book chapters, and the editor of the Oxford Handbook on African American Women's Writing, which is currently in progress. Simone, before we turn to Scotia Brown's stories, to which we've given the overarching title, I would love to have had that conversation with him. I'd be interested to hear about why you chose them for today's discussion. Okay. Well, thank you for inviting me today. And it's the primary reason why I chose Scotia's stories is because of their, they were both focused on education. Okay. And... And they both resonated with the type of research that I have done on the intersections of race and gender and education. So I guess just sort of a natural affinity. Yeah, to yeah, sort of in those. your wheelhouse. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So before you read, are there any features of the stories that you'd especially like our audience to pay attention to? You want to flag anything? I, I think that there's a lot of depth in her stories. So just really listening to... The, the way that she's setting up the story and moving through it. Okay. Both of them are, are told chronologically. Right, right. And that's, I'd say that that's the focus that I would All suggest. Right. Terrific. Okay. So now here's Simone Drake reading, I would love to have had that conversation with him by Scotia Brown. There have been a number of experiences that have shaped my life. And if I had to recall one, that is probably at the forefront of my experiences. I grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois, District 189. Jonathan Kozel identified District 189 as a desperate school corporation. 99% of the population is African American to this day, and I went through elementary school and junior high school at that time. After junior high school, I moved to St. Louis County, and I attended a high school, McClure North High School, which was out in the country, an all-white area. I was one of probably six African-Americans in the school, and I had an experience that I reflect upon. I've ref reflected upon that countless times throughout my life. I was successful. I was a good student, made good grades. I was involved with what was going on in the school, and in the 11th grade, I took the ACT, which is an indicator of how students are going to perform at the college level. I was called into the school counselor's office and I recall that gentleman sitting me down beside him at the desk and showing me the results on my ACT test, and I had not done well. That was the one and only conversation I ever had with that school counselor, and what he shared with me was that I had performed poorly on the test. I hadn't scored well. He told me that I was not college material and that I needed to consider going to a clerical school because I would never be successful at the college level. I guess that was so inter I guess what was so interesting about that was this man made an assumption about my level of success and he didn't know me, didn't know my background. The only thing he knew about me was that I was one of six African American students in that school and I had performed poorly on that test. He didn't know the data which showed that African American students typically perform poorly on standardized tests. He just read the score, and that's what he said, consider clerical school. That was really impactful. 
Fortunately, I'd come from a home where academic success was expected. Attending college was never an option, and so I enrolled in college. But throughout my life, I've always reflected on that, and I wanted to go back and have a conversation with that school counselor to ask him, what was it about me other than that score that would have him sow that seed into my life that I would be unsuccessful at the college level? I never got the opportunity to do that, but I did go into college and graduate and interestingly became a school counselor and committed myself to never sowing that kind of seed into the life of a student because it brings burdens, you know. There were times along my path that when I was challenged to do something, I questioned whether I had the ability to do it because that professional who was in the position of guiding students in their chosen career paths said I didn't have the ability to do it. But I did, in fact, become a school counselor, and I've gone on to become a building administrator, and I'm in a doctoral program. But I would love to have had that conversation with him because I don't know how many other students he shared that information with, how many seeds were sown into the lives of other African-American students that did not perform well on standardized tests, how many lives were thwarted because of that kind of advice, So I reflect on that, and it causes me to work that much harder as I interact with young people. So that's the end of the first story. Second story. My husband and I have three children. We've got one son and two daughters, and you know your first child is your experimental child. You don't want to mess anything up. You don't know anything but really about really child-rearing. So Charles went to university school at Indiana State University, and he had been in kindergarten and first grade when he entered second grade. Well, let me back up. At the end of first grade, he was tested, and he tested above average in all the areas he was ready to advance to second grade. So that experimental child of mine, I would dress him up in the V-neck sweaters and shorts and socks, real nerdy, you know, nothing that I could get him to do later on in life. But I just enjoyed him as a little boy, and I would dress him up and send him into school. His father would take him and drop him off, and at that time, we had a beauty supply in Terre Haute, Scotia's Beauty and Barber Center, and it was kind of the heart of the community. A lot of people came in and bought hair supplies and got their hair done, and we just had conversations with them. And one day, I had a lady to come into the shop, and she says, Scotia, I need to talk to you about something. I need you to go to school and check on Charles. That's all she said. You just need to go to school and check on Charles. I didn't know what that meant because as far as I knew, everything was fine. But I took her advice and I went to school shortly thereafter. And I walked into the classroom one day. All the students had been released and I just asked the teacher how Charles was doing in the class. And she said that she was having some issues with Charles, some real concerns. He didn't really seem to be capable of focusing and grasping the material. And so, because he was so distracted, she had to move his desk. Now, the way the university school was set up is there was a courtyard in the center of the building. So there were windows on the interior of the classrooms. And the teacher had moved his desk so that it faced the wall and the window looking away from the classroom, which was troubling. He had his back to instruction, and I asked her why she had placed him there, and she said again 
that he was easily distracted, wasn't capable of grasping instruction. He was struggling with that, and so that was her way of helping him to focus, was by moving him away or turning his back on instruction. So that was on a Friday. I went home and talked with my husband about it, and on Monday, I went in and had a conversation with the teacher and said, well, I want his desk moved so that he's facing instruction. And if there were any behavioral issues that she needed to notify me and my husband, and I would address those. At that time, the schools were teaching whole language, and so the students were given words on their word ring. And so as they progressed and learned those words, you're supposed to learn by sight that apple, when you saw the word apple, that was apple. You don't sound it out. You just understood that that word was apple. And she would give them words as they achieved success or learn the words on the word ring. But Charles wasn't given any new words. Other students had any number of words on their word ring, but Charles only had a few. And that goes back to her explanation that he was having trouble grasping the concept. He was struggling with the material, and so he only had a few words on his ring. I asked her about that. I went to the principal's office and said, just had this conversation with the teacher, want to make you aware that I expect his seat to be changed so that he's facing instruction. And again, if you have any behavioral problems from Charles, please let me or his father know and we'll address those. In my gut, I believe he was the only African-American in that class, child in that class. I believe that she made a determination that this black child was special ed did not have the ability to grasp the instruction, and probably therefore needed to be tested. So her treatment of Charles was in line with her expectation of him. Long story short, we made the decision probably later on that week to pull him out of that school, and we placed him at another school under the instruction of another teacher, and he flourished. To this day, I'm so thankful that we did that because I believe had we left him under those low expectations of that teacher, I don't know what the outcome would have been. I know what my experience was when I talked to that school counselor. I was 11th grade when that happened to me. He's second grade. What impact would that have made on his life? Had we left him under the instruction of a teacher who had no expectations for him? So when I fast forward to today, he's a doctor and is doing extremely well. And I believe because he was in an environment where high expectations were had of him, and he was able to rise and succeed. He's done well, but how many children, how many other children have come under that same kind of low expectation that I experienced as an 11th grader? And that's just a story that doesn't get told a lot, and a lot of African-American children who can achieve, but work and live and strive every day under those who have low expectations of them, have their dreams shattered because their self-esteem is shattered. And that's troubling, but it happens every day. Just like I didn't have the opportunity to go back and have a conversation with that school counselor, I never had the opportunity to go back and have a conversation with that lady who came into the shop and said, you need to go to school and check on Charles. She happened to be the educational assistant in that classroom. And had she not cared enough to say, go check on your child, we would have gotten much further down that road and much more damage might have been done had she not had the courage to speak up, and I'm so thankful that she did.
Okay, Simon, thank you so much. There's a lot to get into here. I think maybe we could start with kind of big picture of the thing about the two stories together. There's a lot of similarities, and yet there are some differences, and Gosha Brown herself, you know, especially at the end of the second story, makes the connect, makes some connections between the two of them. So I think one place to start then would be to think about them together and also maybe think about them in terms of, you know, our prompt about telling a story in which you were sort of successfully able to negotiate the racism and another in which you weren't. One way to read these would be that they're two kind of success stories, but I think maybe we want to qualify that. How would you... How'd you start there? Whether there is a an unsuccessful yes, element it, it, to the exactly. story as well. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I think Scotia definitely grounds these stories in the personal, right? Her personal experience, her son's personal experience, and her personal experience again with kind of being an agent for her son. Right, right. But she also often comments on the global, kind right. of like, well, mm-hmm. yes, she acted for herself, she acted for her son. But there are many instances and many times in which that does not happen for other children. Yeah. And so I think the, you know, where, where that might fail then or where the failure might lie is, is just in the limitations of her own agency yeah, to, right, you know, to extend. Right. I mean, she certainly is to some extent as a, counsel- as a guidance counselor, right. school counselor, but still that those, there are children beyond the walls of, of her building, and and so just that inability yeah. to really be able to change this entire system yeah, that right, that right, allows right, children to right. be stereotyped or allows children to be um, pigeonholed to, to, by these assumptions, expectations, and you know, prejudices. Mm-hmm. Really, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Also, you know, it strikes me that in the in the, her first story about her, her her own you know experience as the eleventh grader. She does comment on how that the fact that it this judgment came from a professional, you know, sort of stayed with her, right, and made her doubt her own abilities and you know things like that. So, so you know, there's an even where she's talking about her own success. Mm-hmm. She's also talking about you know she says that was really impactful, right, and so right. she does sort of. And her her success is really kind of grounded in the economic, right? I mean, because pursuing, actually going to college, Mm -hmm. you know, statistically is going to put you you in a higher income bracket most times. So she had economic success from that achievement, but the psychological impact, you know, did not fade. She said she remembers, she thinks about it often. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And and then, you know, she's also, you know, offers a reflection, which we've used for the title. You know, I would love to have have that conversation with him, but she doesn't, right, actually have that conversation right. with him. Do you want to tease that out a little bit or what what how how that how that you know functions in the in the larger stories that she's telling? Yes. Because she would like to have had a conversation with the guidance counselor. She also would like to have been able to have a conversation with the educational assistant. Right. So two different types of conversations. Right, right. right. And I, I think it's difficult to live in retrospective of uh-huh. of what I 
could have or would have done. And so I don't know. I can't really speculate yeah. on what she might have wanted to say to him, certainly probably to reveal her success. But I, I yeah. think also wanting to know why, because she does say that, you know, yeah, yeah. like how could he or why would he? Right, right. Um, and how little determine. he did know her, right? The, our one and only conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Seems not to know about this, you know, the studies that have been done about the perform, you know, racial differences in performance on standardized mm-hmm. tests, right? He doesn't well, and, and that, so. college admission, you know, I, maybe it has evolved some, but I mean, it is a holistic review process, right, and right. so it, he made no mention of her grades, of her extracurricular activities, right. or all of these other factors that also right, right. should be considered when you're applying to college. And yeah. it was it was just those scores, yeah. and you know, from a form of testing that was notorious for, right. and even to some extent designed with the intent just, of excluding yeah. people from a particular cl- class or groups of people from right. higher education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, one of the other things that sort of, especially maybe in the first story, right, where sort of the proportion of the story kind of given to the time of the telling and the time of the action, right? So, you know, we do have the proportion about, okay, you know, I had this meeting, my one and only conversation, this is what happened. And then there's a lot of reflection sort of in the present tense about that. And... It may, I guess, where the question I want to ask is, does this, you know, maybe say, in in connection with, I would have loved to have that conversation with him, something about, you know, the fact that she's telling this story now, maybe, maybe for the first time, or, or something like that, right? So I don't know. You have thoughts about about the the occasion of the telling and how that influences, you know, how much reflection she does. I think for Scotia and really for all of the women that whose yeah. stories we listened to, that this was chal- challenging to for some to you know to revisit, but also very kind of cathartic right. to be able to tell it, mm-hmm. and also the fact that someone wants to know, yeah, right, the stories right. Right. that someone right. you know that that people think that they are stories that are worth telling, that are worth archiving, that are worth putting out mm-hmm. in the public yeah. sphere. And so in that regard, then I, I think, you know, what often was painful, because even some of the, you know, the success, it, it still came with pain, mm-hmm. yeah. that there, there is some sense of maybe, I don't want to call it retribution, but, you yeah. know, some, some sense that a wrong is, uh, is being sort of, undone. Uh, yeah, and some kind of testimony kind of thing or witnessing to this mm-hmm. and being able to articulate this. Yeah. You also see, you know, one one of the things you said before you began reading was, you know, pay attention to the kind of progression, how it goes, how it starts, as it goes through. So one of the things that's really interesting about the first story, I think, is that she doesn't start with being a successful high school student, right? She In the 11th grade, she starts with her elementary school experience, right? What kind of effect do you think starting there has well it, it juxtaposes the two spaces okay. right? I mean, right. so she starts out in what what at least by mentioning jonathan kozel alerts mm-hmm. us that it's you know it's very much a well and she also says it's a 99 percent african-american yeah population right. Right. and then she moves to this kind of rural suburban kind of very white population right. where there's only six students who are african-american mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so 
I think, you know, that is a contrast. It makes me think of like the home Nikki Rosa, where the, the idea that urban spaces or low income spaces aren't, aren't safe, aren't able to really thrive, yeah. but that there's a, there's a kind of communal and psychic safety uh-huh. that comes from those spaces that she clearly yeah, yeah. lost yeah, good. moving yeah, right, to this right, more right. this space where supposedly the education should be better mm-hmm. right that yeah, and, exactly. um, yeah. and yeah. and that should be safe yeah. but for her it psychically was not safe exactly right yeah yeah oh, i like that a lot yeah I, I, you know maybe another feature of it too is that you know she's just very matter of fact about this is what it was and you know and this was my trajectory but also that, you know, she came from this school where Jonathan Kozel, you know, there's this documentation about its deficiencies, and then she's succeeding in this predominantly white suburban school, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, it, we, like, I think maybe we can fill in the gap. Well, you know, this is pretty remarkable, right? And this is also maybe implicitly an indictment of that counselor, right, who's mm-hmm. not thinking about any of this, right? Yeah. He's just looking at the ACT score. And and it's I think also indicative of like educational studies scholarship that has that has noted that even in like suburban or more high performing schools that there remains sort of a racial disparity and and achievement gaps. Yeah. And that it's and that it's not and that there's there's various ways, but a lot of but one of the ways reasons is teachers assumptions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about the abilities yeah. and intellectual aptitude right. of you know black ch- black, black students yeah. so it, it seems that that's what she encountered right 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 and then she encounters it with charles right and we were going to transition a little bit to think yeah. about 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 that story so you know one of the i think you know helpful observations you made is that this is a story maybe with two protagonists in a way charles uh, her son and scotia herself right mm-hmm. and here we do get more texture sort of of the you know the the racism the racist incidents right so when she goes mm-hmm. and visits charles at the school after you know, being tipped, she, she spends a fair amount of her story space, right, telling us about what she observed and, you know, repeating a phrase like his back was to instruction and mm-hmm. and, and and things like that. So, I don't know, thoughts about the way in which the, the story works with kind of two protagonists? Yeah, well, for one thing, I think one difference I see is the first story we can't really see what happened. Yeah. You know, we don't see it. Yeah, right. It's just a report primarily. Mm-hmm. And right. with this, with the second story, she puts a lot of detail in where we can see that space. Visualize, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, yeah. And, I, and I think, you know, and really kind of humanize Charles, who was being dehumanized by his, by yeah. his teacher. Right. And so and I think really helping us to see this second grade, so that's probably like eight years old maybe, yeah. boy who is, is being, you know, really just ostracized within the yeah. space that's supposed yeah. to be protecting him and yeah. training yeah. him. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I think it's striking that she multiple times said, if it's a behavior problem, you need to call mm-hmm. us, yes. which makes it clear that the teacher had never, if, if there really was, you know, a genuine p- 
problem. Right. The teacher never attempted to remedy it right. in the way that typically you would. Right. And I, and I think you have Charles and you have Scotia. We never, her husband's never named, right. but she at least twice says, makes it clear, Charles has a father yes. who's at home mm-hmm. and who also will handle these issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, he drops them off. Mm-hmm. They discuss <laughs> what she witnessed and make some decisions. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that too was probably in, you know intentional in how she shaped it yes, because right. it also debunks certain stereotypes, mm-hmm. pretty long-standing stereotypes of like black family yeah. structure. Yeah, 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 right. And again, you know, here, like the, the little bit of the backstory that we get also like, informs, you know, that v- visual images that she evokes, right? So, you know, Charles tested above average and everything, right? Mm-hmm. And then he goes to second grade and suddenly he's, you know, characterized this way by his teacher, mm-hmm. right? And, and and I think one of the things that also stands out for me in the story is like, okay, so she, she does all the reporting about what she observed, right? And I think she lets us, lets her audience make a lot of conclusions about what horrible <laughs> treatment this is, right? Mm-hmm. And then And then at the time of the telling, she goes into her explanation, right, of why, right? The teacher has offered one explanation, right? Oh, he's easily distracted, right? But then she offers another one, mm-hmm. which is about, all about her expectations. Go, right. You know, going back to what you were saying before about about mm-hmm. this common thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think like that the her kind of juxtaposition of the teacher's analysis versus her own. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I think that many black parents have heard. Uh-huh. I mean, like I even remember as a kid, my mom being livid because a teacher had told her that my brother, that black boys just don't learn well. Oh, right? wow. And that yeah. he was not college material. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. He went. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, he went right, right. He finished college. <laughs> but, is, yeah, right. And yeah. you see it starting in second grade here in this mm-hmm. in, in Scotia's story. And so it's, yeah. I think it's, you know, it's, a, it's her own unique story, but it's one that I think many black parents can relate to, particularly of black boys, because there's a very, and a particular stereotype that's attached to them really early. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, going, picking up what you were saying about black families and and how, you know, Scotia represents her, her family when she was a child, and, and then she and her husband with Charles and their other two children, Right. I mean, there's a way in which it's the, the it's the family, in both cases, that's crucial for the you know Scotia in the first case and Charles in the second, mm-hmm. not to be more impacted, more negatively affected by it. Right? Because she's able in the first story. Right? He says, "Oh, you should go to clerical school. She, or you should apply to clerical school." He, she says, I, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, that wasn't the expectation in the family, right? Mm-hmm. And we see it in the second story, right? She and her husband, as you've been saying, are very active with Charles. Yes. And I, like I said, I, I think that she was deliberate in making it clear that these are like family values. Yeah. And that in spite of, you know, what, what you might see or know through media representations or things like that about black people and black families, that that is precisely what they are. They're you know they are skewed representations. Uh-huh. Right, right. Yeah. And so, yeah. so I, I think there there's 
kind of definitely an ele- element of sort of like the politics of respectability mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and wanting to be clear that, you know, that this family embraced those kind of historic kind of social uplift values. Yeah, 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 good. So the other thing in Charles's story, right, in, in addition to the family, we get a sense of community, you know, or this, mm-hmm. you know, person yeah. comes into the communal space, right, the, yes. the, the Barber and Beauty Center, right, and, and says, I, I need you to go to the school, right? And again, you know, I mean, Scotia, I think, is a very skillful storyteller, but she's, she sort of lets us make a lot of inferencing about, you know, how do we put these things together and they're sort of attributing significance to, to these details. Um, right. Well, you know, what do you make of that? Um, and, and here's a, one of the few places where we have it to kind of direct quote. I need, I need you to go. What do you think? Yes, I, I thought that that was very interesting because, you know, I guess Scotia doesn't ask why or what's, you know, what is going on or even perhaps how do you know this? Because yeah. we don't until almost the very end right. realize that right. or learn that it's because she was the educational assistant in that classroom, but that one, because I'm sure because it's her child, Mm -hmm. she said she's going to figure out what's going on. But also I think this trust of this individual that, that she needed to listen as well. But it also, I think just speaks to sort of the larger sort of community dynamics Mm -hmm. Uh, of of people watching Mm -hmm. out for one another. And, and I don't, yeah, and, and you know it's like, it's a smaller city, right? And right. I would imagine that yeah, sort of like the black or African American kind of neighborhoods, which is pretty much where you would find a, a beauty and barber mm-hmm. like supply store, that that would be you know be even a smaller yeah community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, I mean, there's two things about the hat that I think are also worth talking about. One is the fact that, as you've mentioned, Scotia sort of delays identifying that woman as the educational assistant mm-hmm. until the end of the story. So what what kind of effect does, does that have, do you think? Well, it, it certainly doesn't let you immediately have a sense of what might be going on because mm-hmm, right. we don't really know the yeah. context of what yeah. this woman is talking about. Yeah, yeah. So it, it adds some um, kind of suspense to, mm-hmm, to her yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know if yeah. that was intentional or not, yeah. or if she just sort of, towards the end, remembered. Oh, I need to <laughs> say who this <laughs> yeah. woman was. Yeah. But it does. It does do that. Yeah. I'm not sure what else I would think of it. It kind of opens up the question of, you know, why would the educational assistant handle it this way? Right? She sees a problem. Right. So, you know, what are the avenues for her, right? Mm-hmm. Presumably, she, you know, she could say something to the teacher herself, but, you know, there might with also the power, di- power, power yeah. dynamics there and so on, right? Mm-hmm. So, so um, instead she goes to... Well, and even, well, the power dynamics was saying something to the teacher, but one thing we don't know from Scotia is what the result was of talking to the principal. Right. Because she did go... Well, she didn't say anything to the teacher aside from that she, um, you yeah. know, should be contacting her if there are problems. She is pretty direct and clear with the principal about yeah. what she expects to happen. Right. But we don't know how the principal responded. Right. But we do know that within a week or less, right. they moved 
their child right. out of that school. Right. So we don't really know with the educational assistant what avenues she really had to yeah. address it. Mm-hmm. It might have been that she also couldn't talk, really wasn't going to get anywhere with the principal either. Yeah. And so she yeah. went to the mother. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think her, you know, we talk about agency, you know, her agency is interesting. And as you say, I don't think we can, you know, we don't have enough information to sort of, you know, come up with any determinative answers. But, but you know, again, we have this whole thing. In this story, we have the family and then, you know, the community and the educational assistant sort of going to the community space and saying, okay, you know, let the family can... I'll, I'll tip off the family and then see what happens. Yeah. One of the other things I think that's interesting and, and goes back to something that you were saying earlier is the way in which this personal you know, focus in both stores, personal experiences, is sort of contained within an awareness of you know, other people's possible experiences, right? And, and I don't know if... You know this this idea of things could have been different, right? Things could have been different for her. Things could have been different for Charles. Things probably are different for you know other so many other African American students in these school systems. Mm-hmm. So in a way, what I'm thinking about is that there's the Scotia sort of moves back and forth between focus on what did happen and in their cases and imagining what could have happened and then imagining and predicting really probably what did happen in others, you know. So I don't know if you have more thoughts about that. It's, it's sort of inviting you to talk think, more about the personal and the, the more general. Well, we're thinking about the last story and, and just sort of the communal there with, you know, the educational... Yeah assistant coming into this communal space to try to, to try to address an issue that I mean it was impacting Charles but but really was a community issue mm-hmm. right yeah. I think that also speaks then to you know Scotia's kind of consistent return to what's happening you know beyond her household mm-hmm. whether it's yeah. as a yeah. child okay. or yeah. a teenager or whether it's as yeah. a parent with Still always thinking about this sort of larger mm-hmm. African American community um, mm-hmm. that um, and that her experiences, Charles' experiences, aren't anomalies. They don't. They're not happening yeah. in isolation. Right. 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 Uh, but they're happening beyond yeah. their household as well. Right. Right. You know, and and, I, and again, I think that just kind of goes back to where where you can sort of, you know, even though the outcome was good for both of them, mm-hmm. you can see a sense of. Of, of not being successful yeah. because, you know, how do you undo this, right, right, right. on a, on right. a national scale or even, right. even a, even local, yeah. right, yeah, right, right, right. So maybe as we move toward the end, one thing you know, pick up that how do you undo this, right, and you know, part of what we're hoping to do with the project is that, you know, sort of publicizing the stories or giving giving these women the opportunity to tell these stories and then, you know, publicizing them could have some, you know, efficacy in mm-hmm. this. I don't know, but do, do you have more thoughts on just the, the project and, and you know, the, 
Scotia being able to tell these stories and the other women involved being able to tell these stories. So thoughts on, on how they might affect change? Yeah, or just, you know, I mean, the fact that we're focusing on everyday racism to mm-hmm. some degree, too, right? And these are, this, this, this is not a, at the level of, you know, the police brutality stories, of which, of which there are way too many, you know. Mm-hmm. This is like everyday life, right, and negotiating that. And, um, you know, it might not make the newspaper. Right. right? But, but, you know, it's testimony about what it's like to be. Yes. A female, you know, African-American woman, black woman in central Indiana. No. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's power in stories. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think the one of the primary challenges is is getting those stories in the spaces where they can affect change, yeah, right? right? So right, is it right. the stories, is it getting the stories to teachers right? mm-hmm. or, you know, school administrators or, right. you know, in, in the case of some of the other women, is it getting these stories into like HR training right. or yeah. medical training, medical training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I think sometimes some of these are, are, are a little challenging to try to actually change policy because right. their the, the policy is not always directly yeah. involved, right? right? And right, right. and right. I mean, and if you even think of something like infant mortality, it's like mm-hmm. there's there's not public policy yeah. that's really could be you know that's it, there there's it's people's mindsets, yeah, right, um, right. right. and right. and and factors like that, right, and so that's where I think the power of the stories because they, I mean, they humanize right. and right. and they offer perspectives that perhaps some of the people perpetuating these these sorts of inequalities or mm-hmm. you know forms of of discrimination and racism just might not have ever yeah. thought about right. or, or had to right had to engage and yeah. provide some type of explanation for the way in which they are behaving. Yeah. 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 No, um, excellent. Excellent. Any final words? I would just say that I think it's just the joy that it, even though there was pain, but just mm-hmm. the joy that it seemed to bring to yeah. these women being yeah. able to tell their stories mm-hmm. and the care that they put into thinking about, well, which story am I going to tell? Right. How am I going to tell it? Right. And and just what seems to be a, a genuine appreciation yeah. of this opportunity. Yeah. And yeah, and I, you know, speaking for myself, I, I you know, I, the stories brought things home, things that I sort of knew, but mm-hmm. you know, brought them home in a very powerful way. And I think that all the women did a great job yes. with that, right? So. Yes. So, yeah, so we'll keep working and hopefully we'll have, you know, we can publish the stories and some of what we have to say about them Mm -hmm. and so on. So thank you, Simone, for today and really all your your insights and everything you've brought to the project. So it's been a pleasure having you as a guest. Thank you for the invitation and for getting to work on this project. Yeah, yeah. So, So thank you to our listeners. As always, we're interested in your feedback. You can send it to us at uh, email projectnarrative at osu.edu or on our Facebook page or our, uh, to our Twitter account at PN Ohio State. 
You can find additional episodes of the podcast at the Project Narrative website, projectnarrative.osu.edu, or on Apple Podcasts. And please join us for the February Project Narrative podcast when Amin Paul Garcher will be in the guest chair discussing a story by Salman Rushdie.